0: All right, good morning, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church, welcome as well to those joining us online down in our F3 service. Hey, happy apple blossom everybody, Uh, are you feeling the bloom at all? Uh, This weekend wraps up pretty much a week-long affair of festivities, uh, celebration of our town of Winchester, quite a cultured history there, obviously a lot going on, thank you so much for being with us as a part of that weekend. I have a little bit of a, of a bittersweet relationship with Apple Blossom over the years. And that's all thanks to the Kids Bloomin' Mile of 2006. Have you heard of this thing, the, the Kids Bloomin' Mile? Uh, anybody aged 6 to 14 years of age can register for this thing. So much so that there's a, a horde of minors running around the town of Winchester uh, competing. Who is the fastest 10-year-old in the zip code? We're going to find out. All the families gather, they, they line the tracks, and as the kids approach the finish line, everybody's ready. You got grandparents there, cameras there. It's quite a fun affair. Well, many moons ago, uh, my parents, alongside the, the Mead family, you guys might know Ray and Shelley Mead here from Fellowship, uh, my parents and them registered myself and their daughter Emily for our first ever Bloomin' Mile together. Okay? Now, remember, this is one event of many when it comes to celebrating Apple Blossom. But when you're 10 years old, this is the biggest deal on planet Earth, okay? So Emily and I, uh, were quaking in our boots a little bit. If you, if you haven't seen this, they, they shove every kid uh, shoulder to shoulder on the starting line, right? As they prepare to start this race. And the kids range from last year's winner, who's already stretching his calves, right? He's, he's, he's already sponsored by Ar- Under Armour. He's running for a cause. Ranks from that kind of runner all the way to that kid that sounds like that kid that lives down your street. He's already screaming his head off that he has to run this thing. Okay, that's the range of runners we have in this race. Somewhere in the middle are me and Emily, and we're really just kind of disappointed we're even awake yet. Okay, so that's the mentality as we start this bloomin' mile. So the horn blares and we start running, uh, and I received Emily's permission to share this story with you because halfway through this thing, Emily gets a little dazed, she passes out, hits the deck. Now, you got to remember, the only thing my parents really told me was, you make sure the two of you stay together. So the only person I was told to stay with is horizontal. My entire peer group, everybody I've come to know and love that I'm not blood-related to, zoom in past me. I'm just making sure, don't step on my friend. And uh, what's running through my mind is, this, this was supposed to be fun. How are we going to continue this thing? So, before too long, uh, Emily comes back around and we continue on, uh, tears, cuts, and all. And we round that corner, right, where every other family and all the other kids are smiling and happy and taking pictures. Here comes the FBC duo rounding that last corner, looking like we just got back from war. (laughs) Emily's covered in tears and gravel and cuts, I'm covered in regret. And we we actually see our parents right there towards the finish line. They're right right out of bounds. We run out of the race, straight to our parents out of bounds. Emily passed out. We're dying out there. We did not sign up for this. We're done. And so our parents, half in shock and half already laughing at us, said, we'll talk about this later. Finish the race. It's right there. So Emily and I put our heads down. We finished the race, kind of take a breather. And before you know it, it was all granola bars and smiles right? We, we get our participation medals, and it became a funny story. But I'm telling you, halfway through that thing, Emily and I realized there was going to be quite a bit of suffering in what was otherwise supposed to be a, a fun, celebratory affair. What does it look like to continue well when something you didn't want to have happen happens? What does it look like to continue well when suffering seems to play a role? I think the same can be said for ministry and a walk of faith, so, what about walking through suffering in the life of a Christian? What does it look like to continue well? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 14, and we're going to do this thing together this morning. While you're turning there, if you've been with us before, as we unpack the book of Acts, it's no secret at this point that God is on the move, okay? We, we have seen the triumph of the gospel over and over. You better believe our God is in the business of restoration. We have a God of provision A God that offers absolute emancipation from the penalty of our sins. That is important to understand. With that, though, suffering and hardship exist in the Christian life. Today we cover the final stage of Paul's missionary journey. And we're going to get a pretty vivid picture of what a faithful walk looks like. More specifically, a faithful walk through suffering. Read along with me starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 14. It says this. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner, this is Paul and Barnabas, spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. I'm going to stop right there for now. So as, as Paul and Barnabas are on fire for God, clearly having an incredible impact, The seeds of division are sown immediately in Luke's recollection of this event. And I think it's fascinating if you see it says, they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed. You'd think the author Luke would want to detail that a little bit more. I'd love How did they speak? That's very exciting to me. They spoke in such a manner that it convinced everyone of the truth. You'd think he'd want to detail that some more. Give me more of that, that success. Luke, right in chapter 14, about how wonderful that was and the excitement. Instead, what Luke's going to do is recall the second consequence of their actions. The first is that many believed. We see that in the text. The second is that those who didn't believe hated them for it. Specifically, it was unbelieving Jews in solidarity with the Gentiles, which is interesting how rarely up to this point in the book of Acts we can see unity between those two groups, But this time, it's unity against the gospel message. What did it take to to be embittered against such a message? It says they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles. They convinced them what you are hearing is no good. You see, right away in, in ministry, there's impact and consequence. And I think it's important we understand, as they do in this chapter, that if God's family is growing or encouraged in any way, you better believe there's a riling up of enemies who'd love nothing more than to put a stop to it. That's, that's situational, spiritual awareness. This is the reality of the, the climax of this missionary journey. So the question is, how did Paul and Barnabas, our faithful walkers, how did they react? Look at verse 3. We know what's happened. Therefore, they spent a long time there. Speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. We're going to see three things throughout this chapter uh, that help us understand what it looks like to continue well. Uh, Your sermon notes reflect this. The first of which is that a walk of faith through suffering, especially, has everything to do with reliance. Reliance. What in the world would enable Paul and Barnabas to reach that conclusion? Let's stay longer since there's so much division. Minds have been, have been stirred up against them at this point. Enemies have spawned. And the mentality is, you want to attack the truth? Okay, this is exactly where the truth is going to be what enables that to happen in the life of a believer well it seems to be according to the text the lord who was testifying to the word of his grace granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands god is at work in them so we can read that and go okay awesome this is going to be great that must have that must have handled it then right surely luke is going to keep writing in this chapter and he's going to start saying it was incredible There was no more division. Every knee bowed in Iconium on that day. Is that what happens? Is is this a chapter of celebration alone? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Laconia, Lystra, and Derby, and the surrounding region. And there, they continued to preach the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Things got difficult, they stayed. In fact, it wasn't until things got deadly that they left. And how interesting is it, by the way, that phrasing, they became aware of it. I, I think that's so cool. Can't you just... Picture a, a group of disgruntled people against Paul and Barnabas' message, and they start scheming to, to stone them, but maybe they're scheming just a little too loudly. And somebody maybe is over, overhearing that. A, a, a recent convert or a, an ambassador of Christ is going, is that what you're going to do to them? Huh. They became aware of it. So they faithfully move after faithfully staying. I think we've all faced decisions like that before, I think. When to, when to stay in something, when to leave from something. What's the, what's the threshold between God wants me to persevere in this and God seems to have something else in mind? It's a hard wrestle to discern that. But clearly, reliance on the Lord, His grace and truth seem to be essential Whether it's faithfully staying or faithfully leaving. Both of which bring us to the the second thing Acts 14 shows us regarding continuing well. And that is resilience. We have the reliance. It's explicit in scripture. uses the word. Here's the resilience. Basically, be reliant, but to what degree? A walk of faith built on resilience. What might that look like? They, in the chapter, were not just initially reliant on the Lord... No, they they created a lifestyle that avoided them ever being able to say, well, yeah, I was reliant on the Lord until that happened. Are you kidding me? This Christian thing isn't what I thought it'd be. I wasn't expecting that to happen. I'm done. No, that wasn't their mindset. They were resilient in their endeavor. It says, after spending a long time speaking boldly, to adversaries, they continued to preach the gospel in their next location. You see, we're going to notice another thing this morning, and that is that worldly suffering is a consequence of faithful living. Worldly suffering is a consequence of faithful living. So far in Acts, we seem to have this pattern. Good things happen for Jesus, and then, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I wasn't expecting that. This continues in a major way. Listen to this mayhem. Uh, Read along with me, starting in verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul, who was no doubt speaking in such a manner, as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and he had seen... That he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. Not only did he stand, the Bible says he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in their own language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. Listen to what happens here. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus. They began calling Paul Hermes because he was the the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, verse 13, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and he wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this happening, they, they tore their robes, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, saying, men, why are you doing this? Why are you doing these things? Man, I tell you what, the the Bible (laughs) is not just a book of information. I think it's a book of intrigue and humor, because this is madness. Technically, at first, everything you'd hope for as a missionary comes true, even for just a second after this miracle. Because you want the crowd to see. You want an overwhelming response to, to who God is. Except this time, the response is, oh, wow, you guys are gods. That's anarchy. It says, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. It's interesting that if that sentence wasn't in the present and wasn't plural, it'd be pretty sound theology for what we know about God's son Jesus. But here we are. The gods have become like men, they've come down to us, and they began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, Hermes in Greek mythology, the the messenger of the gods. So because Paul is speaking, that's who they claim him to be, which makes Barnabas Zeus. And this priest, verse 13, the priest, picture this happening. Read verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was right outside, brought stuff to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Can you picture that? The priest of Zeus comes barreling into the streets. I can't believe it's finally happening. The priest of Zeus. Can you picture this? This Dunder Mifflin nonsense. If this was a documentary, Paul would be looking into the camera like, I was not anticipating that that would happen. In Acts 14, when ministry goes unaccepted, God is overlooked. That much is obvious. But now, when ministry is accepted, man is quickly elevated to the reason for success. Success. Is that unique only to Acts 14? Or is that something we can fall victim to as well? When ministry is unaccepted, God is overlooked. And if we're not careful, when ministry is accepted, we can elevate man as to the reason for its success. That's the environment they're in. You have a recently unparalyzed man, the priest of Zeus, both of whom probably have not been up to much at this point. And then the masses of people trying to figure out who God is and what he has just done, and even a genuine response of a deity at work becomes a burden on the missionaries. So how do they handle it? They tore off their robes trying to prove their humanity to them, and now what they have to do is try and correct their thinking. That much is clear, and it leads to this mini-sermon. Read along with me in verse 15. This is so cool. In just three verses, there's this this mini-sermon. He says, "Men." Why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. There's a little bit of recap, an Old Testament reference. In the generations gone by, he allowed the nations to go their own way Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And it goes on to say, even saying these things, it remained difficult to restrain the crowds from sacrificing to them, to Paul and Barnabas. This is wild because earlier in Iconium, these people were ready to sacrifice them Now, in Lystra, they're ready to sacrifice to them as gods, both extremes, both difficult, both not according to plan. Man, I tell you what, this walk of a Christian, continuing in ministry, worldly suffering, is a consequence of faithful living. That idea is going to come to a head here with the, the final encounter of this passage, because The suffering has has graduated throughout the text. Things have ranged from headache to death threat. And here's quite literally rock bottom. Look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the crowds, no doubt by stirring up their minds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Suffering at the hands of persecution Now, what we know about Acts, that's particularly interesting. We have a gentleman, Paul, who used to be the one who traveled from town to town to dish out pain. And now, fresh recruits, Jewish adversaries, are after him because he is proclaiming a message of Christ alone and the world is saying that message is worth killing over. Paul experienced high praise And utter rejection. And by the way, people did the same thing to Jesus in the gospel accounts. Paul knows now what it's like to captivate a city to the point where they treat him as royalty. In this case, they actually treat him as a deity. Yet not long thereafter, they want him in the grave. There is not a single example of suffering that cannot be encouraged by the Easter story. And what Jesus went through. Treated as royalty to dead. In Acts 14. They get to this point of suffering. And they supposed Paul was dead. Okay. The the text is clear. They stoned him. Until everything they believed. Was lifelessness. Okay. So there was no. Let's beat him real good. There was no. Let's teach him a lesson. Let's throw him out at the edge of town. Into the mud. And have him learn learn a lesson no they were aiming to kill and they missed and he kept on talk about resilience we get a picture of what that looks like because of God's scripture we're going to see lastly here and sprinkled throughout the passage that a walk of faith through suffering is built on relationship relationship now for the record I just want to clarify this this is by no means the the third most important thing of the text but rather all roads seem to be leading here because you can write down the word reliance you can write down the word resilience that's all good and great but the question is reliance on what resilience fueled by what relationship it's what Paul is being reliant on it's how resilience is even a possibility for him and for any of us this relationship you see, as we read this, Paul and Barnabas are being driven by something. As aware they are of their circumstances, they seem to be more aware of something else. So let's keep reading after rock bottom and picture this scene starting in verse 20. But while the disciples stood around him, this recently stoned Paul, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, basically taking the long way home. In verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders then for them in every church, Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It's going to be clear that Paul has a relationship with those around him, but it is built on his relationship with the Lord. We've seen this throughout the journey. That's no surprise at this point. Here, here's Acts chapter 13, verses 2 through 4. It says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas... And Saul, who we know now to be Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. Chosen by God, driven by His Spirit, now obviously aware of His mission. So, we could, we could leave it at that. Great. God chose Paul and Barnabas, neat. I don't think he's chosen me. Certainly doesn't, doesn't feel like he's chosen me. Maybe you're, maybe you're here right now thinking, <laughs> we're talking about continuing well in something that that I haven't started and I'm not even sure I want to start. I, I, this doesn't seem to involve me. And I can appreciate that honesty, but The fact is, it does involve you. You have been chosen. And just because you you might not have realized that yet doesn't mean it isn't true. Uh, Here's Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. It says this. He chose us in him. That is, God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we would be holy, which means set apart, and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. We've been chosen. 15 to 20 years after this, this missionary journey we're reading this morning, Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he starts it clearly by reminding them how much they came to mind when God did what he did. We read it, and we can understand how much we came to mind when God did what he did, and how Jesus is the one who makes that relationship possible. And good thing, too, because here's John 14, verse 6. This is a gospel account. This is not a New Testament epistle. This is a gospel account. Jesus says to a, a person who's learning about him and following him, Thomas says, how do we know the way? How do we know where we're going here? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father But through me. Jesus gives us an account of who he is and who he is for us. And and what does that do for us? All of that's for what? Here's 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that, for what? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What better context to proclaim the excellencies of him than amidst suffering? Suffering makes us compatible with the world around us. Now, there's a lot more where that that came from. All over the, the New Testament, all over the Bible, and guess what? All over the footprints of your past and the steps to your future is evidence of a God who is ready and waiting for you. We know that because Jesus died for us. We can put our trust in that. We can place our faith in the fact that the tomb is empty and empty for a reason. That God has a plan to to work all things together for our good. And when we start living for, for him instead of ourselves, when we grow in our understanding of who we are in Christ instead of who we were without him, What does that look like? Well, for Paul, getting stoned (laughs) is like throwing pebbles at a palace. Not because Paul is the one capable, but because of who God is. You see, Paul most likely saw Stephen get stoned to, to physical, earthly death. We read that. It's evident in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Stephen, this guy, full of wisdom and of spirit, when he was stoned and killed, it says Jesus stood from his throne to welcome him. The imagery there is incredible. Paul's driven by that same spirit that Stephen had. Paul's living his own words. It's experiences like this that qualify Paul to give us a book such as Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, what better proof that God is for us than him sending his own son to die for our sins? The consequences of this broken, disgusting world placed on his shoulders so that we can stand tall. So we can also stand tall amidst suffering. That's what I mean by relationship, and that's what it takes to have it. It's always only ever been about Jesus and what he has done. So for somebody who has has yet to believe that, it's a call to reckon it true for you you've been putting your faith in who knows what i encourage you to put it in the one who loves you so much he sent his son jesus to die for you to believe that that this god that we're talking about that gave us all this he is the real deal the god of the universe this is how he has chosen to operate it's not about our effort our strength or our ambition it's about god's effort god's strength God's ambition and the way he provided when his son did what he did on that cross. He died for us. For the believer, then, it's a call to continue well despite suffering. Look at verse 22 for a second. According to verse 22, suffering is something we can expect. Now, I just want to be clear. This this verse is not saying suffering is required to enter heaven. We know the Bible will not contradict itself, and we have a sound theology of what it means to enter the kingdom of God. The key to the gate is believe. This verse is addressing the road to that gate. Suffering is not required to enter the kingdom of God, but Paul is saying it will precede it. Paul's saying suffering is going to happen. We can expect it. We ought to expect it. I think we could talk about a theology of suffering for a, for a while. That could be something we could unpack over weeks, and it might be a good time to consider doing that, given what the world is going through right now. I think the church today needs it. Let me share this quote to, uh, with you uh, from Eugene Peterson. Listen to this. It's odd that a religion that carries the cross as its central symbol should produce a culture of people who consider suffering suffering a violation of their spiritual rights. It's a cross for crying out loud. Christ took this symbol of ugly, humiliating death, and you better believe he turned it into a symbol of hope and love. Absolutely. But it is also a symbol of utter devotion to Christ, The cross can be on a necklace, t-shirt, and tattoo. But the point is, the world can do whatever it wants to me. Because it even put to death the one who died for me. This is who I belong to, and this is who I'm living for now. Because that's the reality. We might be in for a world of hurting. But praise God, it's only the world that can hurt us. Here's where I'd like to end. Uh, Three ways we can continue well, given what we've read. We all know by now, Acts is this historical narrative. We don't want to leave here with a a wonderful FYI. This is what it was like. How can I make this personal? How can God's word equip me? Here's the first thing. Expect trials. For you note-takers, underline this bad boy twice, because the next two will stand out more. We can expect trials. They're obvious in this passage. But for us, right now, Acts is the consideration. Here's the actual affirmation. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. You know how easy it is? for us to think that way? Why in the world is this happening? I didn't think this would happen. I never expected this. Happens all the time. We can expect trials. We know that testing produces steadfastness in our faith. Create a lifestyle in your home or your family where everyone is ready. And I'm not talking about panic. I'm talking about preparedness. We can expect trials. Do you know how many of us are, are so ready to go to heaven, but maybe we're not quite ready for what's going to happen before we get there? We can expect trials. The world didn't take too kindly to Jesus when he took so kindly to them. Why would, why would we expect anything different? Here's the second thing. Embrace community. Embrace community. We see this in Acts 14. Despite the suffering, you can kind of tell Paul's never really alone. Obviously, in spirit that's true, but even in community, there was a tangible understanding that they were in this together, okay? The disciples crowded around Paul and enabled him to get away. Not only that, but as Tim has unpacked Acts 13 and before, there's a, there's a camaraderie of travels, We see the fellowship happening time and time again as churches are growing and as the gospel triumphs an excellent, positive, automatic consequences community and praise God for that. So we have a choice. You can be a family of five that that claws at each other just to get to the weekend worship service and then you rinse and repeat your work week. Or you can also be the family that says, Hey maybe maybe community group is the context in which God actually wants me to live and love because folks <laughs> right now we're just listening and learning living and loving is going to start shortly we can embrace community here's the third thing equip leaders equip leaders These missionaries had an objective, and it wasn't just to see what happens. No, they had a spiritually, scripturally informed objective. They wanted souls strengthened, right in the text. They wanted walks of faith encouraged. They weren't just in the business of starting walks of faith with conversions. They were interested in equipping walks of faith. So what did they do? How did they handle that? They appointed elders in every church. And commended them. After all, we got to remember the, the Spirit of God is moving, and a, a worldwide mission is going to require soldiers, recruits, home bases, checkpoints, people who can be God in that community, in that context. We need to equip leaders. For us, I, I want you all to know there are so many ways we can equip leaders here at Fellowship Bible Church, for example. We, we equip leaders when we decide to serve, for example, in children's or youth ministry, teaching young people to grow unto maturity, being raised up in spirit and in truth so that they can one day have an impact on their peer group. We're learning more than ever what's happening to young people in this world, how they're thinking, how they're operating. We can equip future leaders because our children and our youth are not just the future church. They're the present church. Their impact can start now. We equip leaders when we give financially to the local church. What that does is, is it allows our elders and, and our staff to have resources and cultivate environments where relational discipleship and leadership development are a priority. Okay. I don't have time to explain to you all the exciting things happening on that front in this church, but I'm telling you, I can't wait to see what happens with discipleship and leadership development here at this church. We equip leaders when we establish in our personal lives a culture of discipleship, so much so that spiritual giftedness can be recognized And that those around us can be encouraged in the faith. Wonderful things happen when we meet together. We get to learn about somebody, how God has made somebody, what makes them tick, what makes them passionate, how the spirit of God is moving through that person. A lot of times we can sit in here hoping the encouragement comes from up front. What if the encouragement you need in your testimony is in the story of the person sitting a couple chairs away? When we embrace each other and learn what God is doing, we recognize ways in which the Spirit is working. Paul and Barnabas knew this. In order to continue well, they knew they ought to do these things. You better believe we're going to have trials. You better believe we're going to go through them together. And you better believe we're going to equip others so that this can continue on without us. Where does this passage end, though? Look at, the, look at the last two verses with me. Verse 27, 28. When they had arrived, so this missionary journey is coming to a close. They take the long way home, revisiting all these places of both suffering and salvation. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So, after all is said and done, what did their storytelling ensue? I know what I'd be prone to say when I got back. Are you kidding me? That was brutal. They they stoned us at every turn. Even when some believed us, some didn't. Our lives were in danger, it was ridiculous. I couldn't make it half a mile before thinking these things. She passed out. We didn't know we were going to handle this. We didn't know this was going to happen. It's very easy to dwell on that. It's very easy to look back on what has happened and determine, based on the brokenness, that God is not somehow in it. And that's a mistake. What do they do instead? What does their storytelling ensue? They discussed what God has done, they meditated on how He worked. And it was all seen as a door of faith being opened. When is that the first thought that enters our minds when suffering comes our way? Whew. Okay. This is a door of faith being opened. Maybe for me, maybe for my loved ones. Easy to say, maybe harder to do, but the call is clear. We get to see where their hearts were aligned, we we get to think what this must have looked like uh, leading into a time of celebration, leading into a time of worship with what God has done. It's very hard to not worship and not give thanks after you talk about who God is and what he's done. Acts chapter 13 ends describing some joy that was stirred up in the disciples because of what has happened. There was much joy, much celebration for those that believed. Suffering in the life of a Christian is not pointless. Paul wrote to God's people in Rome. He said this, we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Does Romans 5 say, we think that suffering produces perseverance? Romans 5 doesn't say, well, we certainly hope suffering produces perseverance. No, we know that it does. He knows that it does. Everything God is doing and orchestrating in ways we cannot understand, we do know has a purpose so praise God, we no longer have the right to say, well, what is, what is all this suffering for? It's a great question to ask. People ask it a lot. I know what it's for. Perseverance, character, hope, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Years ago, on this Apple Blossom weekend, my, my friend Emily and I realized uh, Life can hit hard in ways you weren't expecting. The way you thought something would go, it didn't. And at a moment where all bets are off and you feel hopeless, we learn that lesson over and over again in all sorts of ways. That will never change the fact that in this Christian life, we have everything we need to walk faithfully anyway. God uses it all It all qualifies you for ministry and an opportunity to speak into the lives of other people for the sake of Jesus. Even suffering serves his purpose, so may the gospel triumph all the more. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for this morning, just the opportunity we have to really cover an entire chapter of this missionary journey and learn a lot about what happened and understand better what can happen what will happen in our lives. God, I, I pray first and foremost that we'd be spiritually prepared, that we'd understand who you are and how you're at work. And God, should we, should we ever be abandoned by this world? Should we, should we ever be acclaimed? Should we ever be surrounded? God, I pray that we would remember the name of your son, Jesus. I pray all this in the name of the son of suffering. Amen.